Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMLS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to OMLAS, the show that dives deep into the fascinating world of economics, bringing you insights from the leading minds in the field. I'm your host, Arman Varma, and I'm thrilled to have Professor Anna Fiela, who is currently at Yale University and is a co-director of the IDE, International Development Economics Master Program, alongside Mike Boozer. For those who don't know, the IDE program uh, is a one-year master's program intended to help students build the necessary toolkit for embracing obstacles in their future careers. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Sure. So to get started then, um, could you briefly describe your journey and background and how that has led you to where you now are? Well, I grew up in Brazil, studied mechanical engineering in college. But as most resilience in my generation, I grew up with inflation well above a thousand percent per year and took interest in economics. But many of the articles and conversations about the topic would elude me when it used the terms such as the current account, the balance of payments, and their links to governance debt. Uh, the second experience that marked me was, um, and it still marks my research today, was working in the manufacturing sector during the 1991 trade globalization in Brazil. I saw firms scrambling to compete with foreign firms, new technologies and capital goods replacing unskilled workers and reshaping the labor market, and the firms restructuring their management as ISO code certifications or integrated computer software became fashionable. So um, after a few years working as an engineering or in finance jobs, I entered the academic area, first through a master's in Spain and then through a PhD at NYU. Sure. Uh, and, you know, obviously now as a co-director of the IDE, um, alongside Mike Booth, of course, what unique challenges and opportunities um, do you encounter in shaping this program? The IDE is a great opportunity for us in the academy to share all the knowledge that has been accumulated in the fields of development economics and international economics uh, with the people who are actually going to apply that knowledge, but that because they often come from developing countries, they don't have access to the same um, information or education that we have here. Sure. Examples of recent progress would be uh, the use of control, randomized control trials. And to take very biased examples from my own colleagues, <laughs> we've learned better um, how to, uh, why workers are reluctant to move to cities where their work is generally more productive than rural areas, or the effect of trade on exporting firms, their quality labor. Just to cite a few examples. Other examples would come from good governance in macroeconomic or monetary policy or governance funding. So inefficiencies arising from informality and financial depression are much better understood today. And then importantly, looking into the future as circumstances change, we've developed the methods to 
analyze data when coming for causality or not, as well as modeling tools to understand equilibrium outcomes and couple those with data. So it's, uh, um, you know, that's uh, the broad objective of the IPE is how to convey all this um, improvements in the field of economics to uh, people who are going to apply that. Sure. And um, in your paper on O-ring production networks, uh, you've used a quantitative model uh, to explore the skill matching in production networks. I mean, for those who may not really understand this, um, for our listeners, could you elaborate uh, on the modeling approach you used and why it's so significant in understanding global trade dynamics? Yes. Uh, so the motivation for that paper comes from a large literature that started in the 1990s, but the main findings were also uh, held up through the papers in the 2000s, which is that um, trade with rich countries increases the demand for skilled workers in middle-income developing countries. Sure. So our paper aims to understand the, the mechanism driving up this demand. And its supporting point is that there are complementarities in the quality of a firm and the education of its labor force with the quality and education of the labor for, force of the firms with which it trades. So examples would be as broad as management. So if you're trading with a firm that has better internal communications and that flexibly adapts to demand or supply shocks, then uh, that firm is going to require from you as a supplier the same type of flexibility and ease of communications. It could be capital goods that the modern ones produce in small batches and much more precision, which then makes your parts amenable to an automated process of assembly. Uh, it could be things, uh, uh, again, managerial, such as uh, just-in-time inventories. If you're trading with a firm that implements it, then you have to deliver the right good at the right time with the right specifications. And if your suppliers are all doing it, it's cheaper for you to adopt also the just-in-time inventories or these integrated computer systems. Right. The basic mechanism, why does it matter for trade? <laughs> it matters for trade because a developing country's firm trading with a rich country is much more likely to meet with a more advanced firm. So if it's a customer, it will, uh, if it's a supplier, it will need to upgrade its quality and hire more skilled workers to uh, fulfill the demands of the, the customer abroad. And if it's, a, again, if it's a customer, it's going to be cheaper for it to adopt a higher technology. Um, these, these types of direct effects of trading with rich countries on developing countries' farms seem to be consistent with the literature I mentioned earlier on the demand for skilled workers. What it doesn't explain is why the demand for skills during a trade liberalization episode is so ubiquitous and so large. And that's where uh, we come in and we implemented the same type of mechanism for the domestic network, production network. Importers and exporters, it's well known, they're very large. 
So in the countries where we produce data, Colombia, we account for more than 75% of trade and domestic inputs, and in Turkey for more than 90%. Sure. So these importers and exporters upgrade because they're trading with better firms abroad, it increases the probability of all other firms in the market right. that they're going to be matched with somebody better than before. And so they themselves will upgrade. And this magnification effect of trade through the domestic network, production network, um, helps us explain much better the magnitude and the uh, ubiquity of the increase in interest. So, sure. And also, yeah, go, go no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go for it. Please go for it. So, last point is that. Uh, the modeling techniques that you mentioned in your question help us understand questions such as when does export promotion work and why does it work in some countries and not in others? And what we find is that there are complementary policies without which export promotion doesn't work. Uh, and the two most important are one, education. You can't expect the trade to have a large effect on the labor market or in manufacturing and expanding and improving the manufacturing base as it did in East Asia if you don't have the skilled workers to um, to implement these technologies in, the, in managerial improvements. And then the second is that because of the, the demand for quality and skilled labor is ultimately coming from the rich countries. It matters that uh, the size of the foreign market matters. So it matters that you're uh, running an export surplus, a trade surplus. Uh, that's more polemic, but it's a very uh, robust in the model that the bigger the size of the foreign market where the quality is higher relative to your own lower quality market, the greater is going to be the effect of trade in um, propagating these better management practices and technologies in the domestic market. Right. So um, you obviously mentioned uh, trade liberalization um, and, you know, Colombia. Um, so, I mean, how do you think trade liberalization is affecting developing countries? I mean, I think in one of your studies, um, you actually um, as you mentioned, analyze trade liberalization in Colombia, uh, and you obviously had uh, impacts on technology adoption and labor markets. So how do these findings um, either challenge or support existing theories of trade development, and how does it affect developing countries specifically? Yes, taking the example of Colombia in the contrast to um, East Asian countries that is eliminating it, that Colombia, like other countries in Latin America did not have the skilled labor force that I mentioned, and they, they were running um, trade deficits, not surpluses. And what you observed in these countries is that trade, yes, it made the surviving manufacturing firms better, and it made them more skill intensive, but it did so not because these firms were hiring skilled workers, but because they were laying off a lot of their unskilled workers, uh, thereby increasing the size of the informal sector. So the effect of trade can be very heterogeneous, even if for surviving firms, they may look similar in one country or the other. Um, 
then to answer the second half of the question is how does our paper fit into the literature? Um, I think the, the novelty is the role of the domestic networks and uh, that framing of uh, the effects of trade through this complementarity of skilled workers across firms. Sure, and um, just to further continue the notion of trade, um, I mean, how fair do you think um, the trading system is in the world? I mean, obviously we have the WTO, uh, but is the WTO really a just, you know, is it, is it really just in its actions or because simply, you know, the US um, obviously funds the WTO with the most amount of money. So how, how, how do developing countries sort of get that extra fairness um, despite not being able to fund necessarily the WTO as much as other countries? So I'm not sure that the WTO's objectives should be fairness. Um, what I think it is, is an agreement across countries so that, um, that it, it has recommendations for policies and if a developing country enters into the WTO, it's going to be subject like other countries in the, in the group to the lower tariff, the most favored nation uh, clauses. And so uh, I think that the WTO in its founding then went a little bit away from that original, uh, those original charters, but it was very humble relative to other international institutions and realizing that it didn't have the mechanisms to implement its own rules. So uh, if you read the original writings of the, the original documentations of the WTO, it reads very much like game theory. Is Well, if a country breaks its rules, it's not up to the WTO to implement it. It has no tools, uh, any type of punishment. Would other countries have the incentive to punish that country or not? And what would punishment look like? Um, right. There, what the main finding was that small countries indeed don't have much of, of tools to, to punish other countries because sure. its trade is small. Um, and so it can put its tariffs all the way up to <laughs> prohibitively high tariffs, but the other countries are not going to care much or behave right. differently as a result. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly does. In the economy, it's better to have clarity and rules than... Um, some notion of justice, especially justice and outcomes. Right. Um, and yeah, how does international trade? I mean, obviously, the demand for skilled labor is influenced by international trade. So what are the implications for both developed and more importantly, developing countries um, who have varying levels of skill in their labor forces? <laughs> that's, a, that's a very broad uh, question. Uh, most of what I've discussed applies to middle-income countries. The, um, the effect of demand for skills in large countries is, is very driven by uh, their technologies, more so than trade with, uh, with the less developed countries, although evidence from China uh, more recent shows uh, that it can have a large impact on the labor market in some regions. Um, the 
and this also applies more to, I keep on emphasizing middle-income countries, because more research and data are needed to better understand the effects in underdeveloped countries, and those may be different. In fact, research suggests that they may be different. Um, so then finally, I mentioned the two uh, complementary policies that would help export promotion succeed. One of them was education, so it's almost up to each country to try to attain that. But then the trade surplus with rich countries is something that we find strongly in the model. But we certainly can't recommend it as a, as a policy for all countries, um, just unless we're running trade surpluses with Mars, it's, it's mm -hmm. going to happen, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, so obviously education is, you know, a necessity uh, when it comes to when it comes to skilled labor. But how do you actually propose that middle income countries and low income countries um, sort of expand their? I mean, where do they get the money to fund schools and uh, where do they get this extra government spending? Yeah, so. Um, I think there are lots of countries and again, if we can look into East Asia that have succeeded in, in strengthening their, their educational sector and they can do it through the government or through through the um, through the private sector but I think importantly you pointed out that it's necessary but it's not a sufficient condition the example of East Asia East uh, Europe gives us that with a highly um, educated labor force there was a lot of potential a lot of expectations in the 1990s that didn't necessarily turn up this Economics is not one-dimensional. Sure. Uh, rule of law, um, financial development, but there are other factors that enter into that equation. Right, and um, with the ongoing... And you can add in healthcare or um, in the financial development, you can put in home uh, policies and home ownership policies who knows there are there are a lot of things education is one one piece of it it's certainly not sufficient sure um and i mean your work has highlighted um that there are obviously ongoing shifts in global trade dynamics um such as rising protectionism and digital transformation so what future trends do you actually anticipate in international trade and just you know broadly economics so dynamics create obstacles and opportunities, and the, the recent rise in protectionism has shown so. So, for example, uh, many Asian countries benefited from the U.S.-China trade wars as production reallocated to these countries. So the work of Central Nut Plan in, in Ortashu, or the Goldberg and Pajobaum um, are some of the researchers that have worked in the area. And then I point to... Agostina Brinati's recent PhD thesis, it shows how Canada benefited from Trump's restrictions and skilled immigrations into the U.S. So those uh, uh, rise in protectionism is maybe an opportunity. I think the, the view is not to emphasize and hammer on the same points as before, <laughs> that if a country has good governance, infrastructure, qualified labor force, then uh, it is bound to be recognized by uh, 
international investors and, and firms, and they're likely to fare well under future changes, be them technological or political. I'd mostly leave it to the business sector to second guess how specific technologies will change the local economy. Uh, what the governments can do is just like the private sector, think of and ask how do these new technologies uh, help potentially us deliver better uh, our services and more efficiently, as long as those services are not surveillance. That's a question to ask. <laughs> um, right, and, and, you know, what are some of the key challenges that you face in analyzing uh, economic data, uh, you know, and, and how do you address them? Um, the type of work that I do, which is uh, known as structural models, it, uh, um, it's a very time-consuming type of work. <laughs> to give you a sense, is that you you build a model, and the model is uh, rich enough that it can generate data either of heterogeneous firms or um, heterogeneous countries, and they have specific predictions for the uh, distributions of, say, um, firm outcomes that we observe in the data, or uh, bilateral trade across countries. And uh, uh, there's a lot of interaction between data and model to get the model to reasonably capture the main stylized facts in the data that speak to the mechanism that you're trying to uh, study. And the payoff of that is that once you have a model that can actually replicate the main um, findings in the data that, uh, again, are relevant for the mechanism being studied, then you can do uh, policies, uh, simulate policies in the model and observe their outcomes in the, uh, um, in the model per se. So these, uh, uh, these policies, uh, these complementary policies in education and trade imbalances were things that we found only through the lens of models the model because they're equilibrium outcomes, not by observing the data. Right. Because in the data, the policies come together with all other types of shocks and changes in the economy. It's much harder to isolate it. And sometimes these effects are, are unpredictable, right? things that you haven't thought about, but then exposed, once you observe it in the model, they make sense. And so I think it's a more rewarding and in-depth type of work. Of course. And um, are there any current projects or particular upcoming publications that you're particularly excited about? So I'm excited with a, a, about a paper that I've been working on for quite a few years with a, my thesis advisor, Jonathan Eaton, that studies, uh, studies bilateral trade across countries. There's a large literature on uh, gravity models and uh, that predict quite well the value of trade across countries. Right. And in these models, the gains from trade come either from a growth in variety or a decrease in the cost of producing goods or an increase in the quality. And so all these characteristics, whether it's one source or the other of gain, it should be um, 
reflected in the variety of products that countries trade and the prices at which they trade these products. But these gravity models are uh, inconsistent with the facts we know, the existing ones are inconsistent with the facts that we know about price and variety in bilateral trade data. And so what uh, Jonathan and I have done is uh, developed a model that uh, has the same predictions for the trade values and welfare changes in the aggregate of a, of a gravity model. And at the same time, it's, very, it's consistent with uh, how the value is split into uh, a variety of products, uh, and quantity per product, and, uh, and price per product. And, uh, um, and so we can speak to how, what are the sources of the welfare gains, either from trade or economic growth variety, quality, or, or, or cost. And we find that the variety accounts for about half of it, and right. the quality about a tenth, and, and then the decreases in cost of the remaining. But it depends on what type of, of change, whether it's you know, trade or growth. But that's, that's the, the project, roughly <laughs> speaking. Um, yeah, no, that sounds very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, giving that a read uh, when it when it is published. Um, but finally, uh, for our listeners uh, who may be interested, what advice would you give to young economists and students interested in pursuing a career in international economics? Uh, so, answer that question with a tribute to Jonathan, my advisor, with whom I learned so much in co-authoring this paper with him. And the advice is, take the topics that you find the most interesting in research. Don't cut corners on each topic. Do the best, most thorough work that you can. And uh, it was this pursuit of truth and quality in research that I learned from Jonathan. And if you're pursuing other objectives in your career, like low-hanging fruit or <laughs> in your CV, then you're like the Pharisees lengthening their tassels. You're just wasting your time from my perspective. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on Omelas, and a special thanks to Anna Fiela for sharing her invaluable expertise and perspectives. We hope today's discussion um, has shed light on the intricate workings of international economics and its major significance in our world. Don't forget to subscribe for more insightful conversations. I'm your host, Arman Varma, and until next time... Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.